Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4 here this morning. Verses 1 through 11, let's go ahead and read those together here now. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we read, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. If you'd agree with me in prayer once more. Father, this is your word. We give you thanks for it, Lord, and we ask that by your spirit you'd give us understanding here this morning. Once more, Lord, help us, Lord, to apply it to our lives and be with us here as we study now. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've come now to what is known as the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. You see, no sooner, last week considering his baptism, no sooner do we see the glory of his baptism, which marked the beginning of his public ministry, that moment when the Spirit ascends on Jesus, saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, uh, this incredible moment, then he is then driven out into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. Now, as it pertains to this quick shift from a glorious moment to what had to have been a very difficult time period, the same could be said of many of us and our own walk with Christ. When people get saved, when I've had the tremendous privilege of leading people in a prayer of salvation or uh, the opportunity to baptize someone, I kindly remind them that they are putting a target on their back, that they should expect an attack from the enemy. You see, the roads of life this side of heaven are not paved with gold, and anyone who tries to convince you otherwise is trying to sell you something. Uh, life this side of heaven, though filled with wonder and filled with incredible moments of joy, is also hard. Life is hard, and some are learning that more these days. But our hope is in Jesus. And we won't trade the momentary pleasures that this life may offer us for the promise of the exceeding glory in the life to come, in which is in part what we see with Jesus and his interactions with Satan here in the wilderness, that Jesus himself will not trade momentary pleasures for the plan of God and for the eventual reward. Now, why is it important for Jesus to endure this wilderness period? What's the purpose of him having to go out and do this? Well, no different than his baptism, this allows him to identify with us in every way. 
Further, Matthew here, writing to a Jewish audience, the account of Jesus' life, in particular this time in the wilderness, bears striking similarities to the period of the Exodus in the experience of the Jews in their own wilderness wanderings, where they faced their own testing over the period of 40 years. And so again, for Jesus, this is about identification. This is about the Son of God humbly coming into this world, fully man, yet fully God, and experiencing the things that we've experienced so that he can be a true Savior for us. In Hebrews, in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, we read, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. He had to be made like us in every way to experience the things that we experience. Hebrews 4.15 also says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And for the Jewish people of the day, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, we read, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you whether you would keep his commandments or not. You see, it was essential for Jesus to experience this so that, once again, he could truly be our perfect Savior. Now, you may think that Jesus being Jesus, can't actually be tempted or even understand temptation the way that we do because, after all, He's God in the flesh. But don't forget that He is fully man. And He was fully tempted, but He did not sin. You see, it's important for us also to understand that temptation itself is not sin. I think oftentimes we feel that way. Oftentimes when temptation comes, we think that somehow we're wrong for experiencing the temptation. That's not the case. The enemy tempts us. The enemy brings these things into our life, brings these things into our minds. It's when we give in to the temptation that we sin. And so we may think, well, how could Jesus truly experience these things in a way that benefits me? And, and again, he's fully man, fully God, fully tempted, did not sin. And yes, the fact is, that's a mystery of the incarnation. We cannot fully understand how all of those things work together. But scripture tells us that they do. The question becomes, here as it pertains to Jesus and even our even if we accept which we should that okay Jesus let's say Jesus was tempted but he was Jesus he can endure temptation far better than I can but let me ask you this question who knows the full weight of temptation better the one who gives into the temptation or the one who bears the full weight of it without ever giving in it's the latter, of course. It's the one who's had to truly endure, to bear under the weight, the full weight of the temptation, and experience it in its fullness, never giving in. You see, it's easy to give in to the temptation, but the one who endures it without sin, he is the one who truly understands it. So when you cry out to your Savior, when you yourself are facing temptation, don't think that he doesn't understand Rather, you can cry out to Jesus knowing full well that he understands, he's been through it, he's been victorious, and he too can help you through that experience. So let's look at chapter 4, verse 1. 
Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We see two things here. First off, note that it is the Spirit that leads Jesus to the wilderness. It was God who allowed for this to happen. Recall, as I mentioned, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, it says, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you whether you would keep his commandments or not. It was God who allowed this to happen, not only in the life of Jesus here, Jesus coming only to do the will of the Father, but it's also God who allows these things to happen in our own lives. However, and second here, it was not God who did the tempting, but rather it was the devil. James chapter 1 verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. God in his sovereignty allows these things to happen, doing so, particularly in the life of a believer, to bring himself glory and to work things together for good, Romans 8, 28, for the believer. That's why he allows these things in your life to grow you and to change you and to transform you. But it's not he who does the tempting because that's inconsistent with his character. God has not created evil. He does not inflict evil, but he allows it for his glory and for your good. It's the enemy, though, that brings the temptation to Jesus during his time here in the wilderness. And so God is not doing the tempting here. He's allowing it to do a work in us. He's allowing it that Jesus would be able to identify with us in his humanity. And ultimately, in both cases, it brings glory to his own name. In verse 2, we read, And when he had fasted 40 days, this being Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now this seems to be a massive understatement on the part of Matthew, does it not? When he hadn't eaten for, listen, 40 days, he was hungry? You think? Wouldn't you be hungry? How many of you, those of you here, and maybe some of you watching online right now, any one of you ever had to fast for a surgical procedure? Yeah, I've had to do it. It's hilarious because oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, the requirement is sort of like no eating after midnight. And then maybe your procedure is like 8 or 9 o'clock the next morning, and you're thinking to yourself, how am I going to get through this? I mean, because you had to, what, skip breakfast? Maybe normal times you wouldn't even necessarily eat breakfast, but the very fact that you're being told you can't is a starvation that's already setting in, right? I remember I had to do this in high school one time. And uh, yes, Ashley and I have been together a really long time, okay? So she knows this. I was getting ready for a procedure, football injuries. I had two surgeries. They said, you can't eat after midnight. You know what I did? Well, I waited till 10 o'clock and I hit the buffet, right? I mean, I was going to eat everything that I could eat, because how am I going to survive this, okay? So we're crazy. Normally, midnight, you'd be asleep anyhow. But you just that night, you gotta, you're going to wait till 11.55 to have that snack just to make sure to carry yourself through it, right? 40 days Jesus was fasting. 40 days. So fact is, physically, he was likely to have begun the process of essentially dying from starvation. It's said that when you've been starving, when you've not been eating for a long time and hunger pain returns, here it's stating that Jesus was hungry, that that's an indication that your body is now beginning to essentially consume itself. Now, I cannot speak to his, his emotional and spiritual state. No doubt I would assume he was in a good place, depending on the Father. But physically, he was weak. And the enemy shows up. In verse 3 we read, Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones 
become bread. So note, Christian, two things. One, the temptation came when he was weak. And the enemy uses the same tactics today. We must be careful when we are weak, when we're tired, when we're emotionally exhausted. This is when the attacks of the enemy tend to come because Satan knows you are vulnerable. And Satan, as it says in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is on the hunt And if he sees you weak, he is going to attack. So we ought to expect it in those moments. And number two, it's a matter of when, not if. Okay? It's not a matter of if the temptation is going to come. It's when we ought to be prepared for it. So the first temptation comes here to Jesus in the form of addressing what Jesus was currently experiencing. So he comes in his weakness and he comes appealing to something that's happening in his life at that moment as he says, turn these rocks into bread. Now, here's the thing. We're to look at Jesus here, right? And we're to take comfort from the fact that he's experienced temptation like we experience temptation. And so a bit of a side note, you may not be feeling like, oh yeah, that's a total temptation for me too. I mean, sometimes I'll be out on a walk and I'll see rocks and I'll just think, man, I'm going to make these things into sandwiches right now. Has that ever happened to any of you before? No, you're not that familiar with that particular situation, right? That's why we need to look deeper at this situation. It's not about rocks being changed into bread, but the context here of what's happening and what it is that Satan is trying to do. So let's go deeper here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says this, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. A lot of times we like to think that the temptations and the struggles and the different things that we face were unique in that. And the only reason we may be unique in that is because of ignorance, and I'm not faulting anybody, but because we don't talk about these things transparently, because we're not vulnerable with people, particularly within the body of Christ, we think we're going it alone. When oftentimes when we're willing to talk out loud and say the things that we're dealing with, we find that a whole lot of other people are dealing with some of the same things. There's nothing new under the sun. We're all facing some of the same temptations. Now, they may manifest themselves differently, but they have the same root. And so, no differently than Jesus here being tempted to turn the rocks into bread, it's rooted in something that we can all relate to. First off, we need to recognize here, though, that Satan, like in the garden, begins by questioning God's word. Note that in Genesis in chapter 3, verse 1, this is the account of the fall in the garden, Satan says to Eve at the time, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden you see that's the way that satan uh, does it when he comes into our life and he begins to question what god has said the word that we've heard the word that we've accepted and received he begins to twist it and to question it and in similar fashion to jesus here he says if you are the son of god right he begins to question to to cast doubt over the truth that has been declared remember it had just been declared at jesus's baptism Now, Douglas Sean O'Donnell, in his commentary, he paraphrases this verse in a way that I think will help us understand it a bit better. He writes, look, Jesus, this of course being Satan talking, look, Jesus, you're hungry. The whole world is hungry. If you can turn these stones into bread, which I know you can because you're God's son, then feed yourself, feed the world. Use your power for what people most need and want, for their bellies to be filled. 
And then watch the whole world run after you like sheep, grateful and obedient. You will have the whole world literally eating from your hand. Give people what they really want. Not the word of God, but food from God. You see, Satan can start to really make a hard bargain to convince us that his way is better. And so you see what the devil was tempting Jesus with here was the sin of self-gratification. It wasn't about turning stones to bread. It was about self-gratification. What is it that you desire, Christian? Especially in your time of weakness. The enemy would want you to think that your desires are not being met, that you should just indulge it, stop trusting God's plan or his ability to fulfill your desires. Do this instead. It makes sense. You deserve it. You've earned it. The world is crying out to us today. Have it your way. Just do it. Get what you want. You do you. But that's contrary to the plan that God has for your life. And so in verse 4, Jesus answers and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, Jesus responds, and we see two things here in his response. First, Jesus quotes Scripture. Note there was no superpower that was wielded, no bolts of lightning from his eyes that vaporizes the enemy. Though certainly Jesus could have rebuked Satan into the next galaxy had he chosen to do so. No, what Jesus demonstrates here is the power of the Word of God. And he will do so each time. In the three different ways that, that, that Satan comes at Jesus, every time he will respond with the Word of God. And indeed, that is a superpower. It's the living Word of God that has the power to silence the devil. And the cool thing about it, the amazing thing about it, is we have that same power as we hold the Word of God. It's our sword and we can use it. Ephesians chapter 6 speaks of the weapons of warfare, of the armor that we have, whether it's, whether it's the sword, which is the word of God, or, or perhaps here, I think maybe the shield of faith uh, is more likely the weapon that, that, or the defensive mechanism that Jesus is using because he seems to be operating right now in the defensive, less so the offensive against Satan, more so the defensive, holding up the shield of faith, protecting himself from the fiery darts of the wicked one, as Scripture says. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And Jesus is demonstrating that faith here as he puts out the word of God to defend himself against the attacks of the enemy. Now what specifically does Jesus respond with? Here he references Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Again, bringing this back to the experience of the Jews during their time in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3 says, So he humbled you allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. We know that during this time, God fed his people manna from heaven. There's no recipe for this today. We can't get our hands on any manna. This was something that was specifically given by God for the people to survive on. Uh, it was sweet. It was delicious. But you couldn't take any more of it than what you needed for that day. Otherwise, it would spoil. And so it kept them continually dependent on the Father that they would learn that right relationship with Him. So the question becomes, will you trust God? Will you trust His Word? Will you trust what it is that he has for you? Or will you seek your own plan, your own gratification, which is aside from his plan? 
That's the first question we're faced with. Next in verse 5, we read, Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Once again, it may be difficult for us to relate here to this particular temptation. What we need to note here is that the enemy references Psalm 91. And this should be a side note for us that, listen, the enemy knows Scripture too. He's a formidable foe. He just twists Scripture for his own preferences and liking. And so Psalm 91 is a psalm about God's protection and about God's provision. As Jesus here, I think, models and, and lives out a wilderness experience that parallels that of the Jewish people. Uh, I'm mindful of Exodus chapter 17. Out in the wilderness, God's people begin to question God. You see, they needed water. This is the moment in Exodus 17 when Moses brings water from a rock. And in, in Exodus 17 verse 7, they cry out, Is God among us or not? As they demanded water. You see, both then and here in the temptation of Jesus, it was a matter of self-protection, about not trusting what the Word had said about God's provision, about His blessing, about His protection, but instead testing God in it. It's about the tendency to manipulate and twist Scripture both as a way to question and to test whether God will do for us what we think He should do. You ever made a foolish decision before? Get it in your head that... You want something that you really shouldn't have and maybe you try to convince yourself that God is okay with it. You twist scripture to support it. Maybe instead of dealing with the consequences of your own bad decisions, you say, but God, you, you said you love me and that you're gracious and so what gives? You see, any number of circumstances can often apply to this moment, but Jesus rightly replies here in verse 7 as he says, Jesus said to him, it is written again, again referencing scripture, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You shall not test the Lord your God. And so again, Jesus turns to the word of God and to the shield of faith, and he says, referencing here Deuteronomy 6, 16, you shall not test the Lord your God. You see, Jesus knew that he had no reason to test the love and the protection of the Father. Could he have thrown himself off from the, the top of the temple there and trusted him as a way of, of proving that God would protect him and care for him? Sure, but he had no reason to. Rather than testing the love and the protection of the Father, he rested in it. And you can do the same. Over and over again, the Word tells us not to fear, not to worry, not to be anxious. Why? I mean, we're, we're going to get there in just a few Sundays. We're going to make our way into the Sermon on the Mount. That's going to be an incredible time as we study that passage of Scripture together. And it's there that Jesus will teach us the very basic principles that we see on display in creation every day as we look outside and we see, wow, it's so amazing that even right now, I can see right outside there, we hacked these crepe myrtles down last year. The ones in these nasty bushes over here that need to come out, in case anybody ever wants to do some landscaping. Shameless plug. We cut those crepe myrtles right off. And we have done nothing since then. We literally came in and hacked them down, walked away. There they are. How is this possible? It's just, in fact, it looks fantastic. It looks really healthy and green and full, fuller than it was to begin with. How is that even possible? It's just a bush, right? It's just a tree. But we, being the glory of his creation, made in the image of God, will wake up tomorrow morning and say, Oh God, where are you? Why, Lord? What now, God? 
I don't, I'm not mocking you. That's me, right? Listen, why do we do that? And Jesus will tell us, look at the birds of the air. Look at the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin. And I paraphrase, doesn't God care more about each and every one of you? Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Sufficient for the day is the trouble thereof. Trust him. Jesus knew he could rest in the promises of God because God loves us, because he's faithful, because he will do what he says. And so we don't test him in this for the sake of our own self-protection. Verse 8, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now this is a bit more relatable for us perhaps this morning as this is the sin of self-exaltation. We've got uh, self-gratification, self-protection, and self-exaltation that we see in the temptations of Jesus And with self-exaltation, we need to be honest that we want power, we want prestige, we want to have the world bow at our feet, we want to be known, we want to be uh, popular, you fill in the blank. But in this temptation here was explicitly expressed the very cost of the self-exaltation and that was to worship Satan. You see, that is what the ruler of this world wants, to be worshipped. Now, you might say Jesus knew all of this that, that, that Satan was showing him, that all of it would be his anyhow in time. So how was this a temptation? Well, certainly yes, and in time, all authority would be given to Jesus. We see that in Matthew chapter 28. But for this time in which Jesus was living, where he willingly surrendered to the humility and to the plan that God had for him, the road to Calvary was awaiting him. So don't think that Jesus wasn't wrestling with what would be required of him in his suffering upon the cross, whether or not he could avoid that. This was certainly a temptation to him. So too for Christians today, there is a promise of glory. As Christians, we have a promise of glory, of an incredible future with him. But our glory comes through our obedience, which also means suffering as opposed to sinful submission to the enemy and the ruler of this world. Russell Moore writes in his book, Tempted and Tried, that Jesus refused to exchange the end-time exaltation by the Father for a right-now exaltation of a snake. Sadly, though, we are far too often willing to settle for the latter in our own desire for self-exaltation. But in verse 10, we read this, Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. So now, here comes the rebuke as Jesus says, Away with you. And then, perhaps now, this is the time where we see Jesus swinging his sword and holding his shield at the same time as he references Deuteronomy 6.13. Listen, we don't live in a culture today where the worship of other gods is as obvious as it once was. But make no mistake about it, there are more idols today than ever before. The Baals and the high places of pagan worship today are ever before us in our worship of self. Whether self-gratification, self-protection, self-exaltation, self is the God that we worship. And the enemy would love nothing more than to make you more concerned about you than anything else. You know, it's interesting in which this time in which we live that 
once again, I'm not, I'm not suggesting anything about COVID or any of the other things that are going on in our world today other than it's interesting how quickly circumstances can come about that cause us more and more to worry about this one, to look at ourselves, to worry about ourselves, to worry what's going to happen to us. And I'm not condemning anyone over that other than saying, let's look at how it happens so quickly. And so Christians, I would say it's time for us to swing our swords a bit more and to hold up our shields standing firm against the attacks of the enemy. Yes, the enemy prowls around looking whom he may devour, but like 1 Peter 5, 9 says, which comes immediately after, we are to resist him steadfast in the faith. That's what we're called to do. When we hear that there's a lion outside that wants to devour us, it doesn't say, so don't ever go outside again. The implication in Scripture is put on your armor and get ready to go. Know that he's there and resist him. James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 say, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and what? He will flee from you. Amen? He will flee from you. He goes on to say, James writes, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He says here, he deals with the fact that we need to repent, but then draw near to God, and God will draw near to us. What a shift from the time of the Old Testament where for the Jewish people, what were they accustomed to as far as God was concerned? That God was in the temple, and he was distant from them, and they could not draw close. Well, that was because God was a holy and righteous God. And absent a, a Savior, they were not reconciled to a right relationship with him depending only on the sacrificial system to draw close but because the ground had now been covered in the blood of jesus christ god was saying draw near to me come close to me come into right relationship with me submit and surrender your life to god resist the devil and he will flee first corinthians 10 13 i referenced it earlier the beginning of the verse says no temptation is overtaking you except such as is common to man it goes on to say but god is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it and so you see in verse 11 we read then the devil left him and behold angels came and ministered to him Friends, we know the ending to this story. The enemy is defeated and we win. But between now and then, there is a battle being waged and we must learn to fight. We will continue to face temptation. That is not going to end. But a reminder once again, temptation itself is not the sin. It's when we give in to it that we sin. So rest assured, temptation is going to continue to come at you, especially when you're weak. So be, be on the lookout. Your enemy, the devil, will continue to prowl around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you, but that doesn't mean you need to hide out. Rather, we're called to recognize that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers of darkness of this age, and that we're to put on our armor, the armor that the Lord has given us, and we go out and we fight. I mentioned this in the first service. I can't help but mention it again. Listen, if you saw somebody sitting in their house in a full getup, right? They've got the full knight's uniform on. I mean, they've got their, they got their helmet on and they've got their, their armor and they've got their belt and their boots and everything and they're just chilling watching TV. What'd you think? That dude's weird. Nobody watches TV that way. Why are you dressed like that? You're dressed like you're going into battle, but you're just sitting in your house, right? You would, in, you would intuitively know that if they are dressed up, ready to go into battle, that they're going into battle. One of my favorite movies, Braveheart. William Wallace, 
in the movie, his big, his, his, his big friend, right? They're getting out, they're, they're going out to battle, and there's sort of this question of, are we going to fight today? Like, are we, are we going to make a peace treaty or are we going to fight? And his friend says, we didn't get all dressed up for nothing. Christians, we didn't get all dressed up today for nothing. We've got to go out into battle. We've got to go out. Satan desires to disrupt the plan of God corporately among the church and also in your life individually, and that's often how he does it within the church. That's why we're called to bear one another's burdens. That's why we're called to walk together, to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, to keep each other accountable because we know if one of you goes down, it's going to start to disrupt everybody else. We've got to have each other's backs and his tactics haven't changed much. He'll get you focused on self, worried about your own gratification, worried about your own provision, worried about your own protection, worried about your own exaltation and every step you take toward that direction, you worship the ruler of this world more than the one who created you who's still on the throne this morning. But you see, God knows God knows this. Why? Because he too was tempted. And so it's not lost on him what it is that we're going through each day. And so there's not condemnation in that, but rather encouragement to say, I'm with you. He was in every way tempted as we are yet without sin and he's interceding for you. Do you get that? He's praying for you. And yes, he's allowing some of this testing in your life in order to bring about growth for his glory, But to be victorious, we must use our weapons with eyes on him through the word. We are victorious and to trust and to know he is praying for you. Jesus himself is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you, praying from a place of experience saying, I know what they're dealing with, I know what they're struggling with, and I'm praying, Father, for them that they could endure this and they could bear the weight of the temptation, making a way out. That when we don't know how to pray ourselves, the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. He Himself interceding for us. We have the power of the Godhead employed on our behalf, praying for us daily so that we could be victorious. I'm going to invite the worship team up to close us out and I'll finish on this verse. In Colossians 1.27 it says this, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, listen, Christ in you the hope of glory, the same power that sent Satan to flight, that was victorious over temptation, resides in you. Alone, you can't do it. Rest assured of that. Satan will win every time when it's just you. But with Christ and at the name of Jesus, the enemy will flee. Amen? And so let's draw near to Jesus today and have victory over the flesh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pause here now. And Lord, we thank you for your word that you exalt above your own name. We thank you for the instruction that we find within it. Lord, we praise you and magnify your name knowing that, Lord Jesus, you, Lord, you accomplished so much in your willingness to come to this earth, to leave your rightful place in heaven, looking down upon creation and knowing that in your love for us, we needed to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. And that as you came in the flesh, Lord, it wasn't just It wasn't just to come and and to die, though that would have seemingly been more than enough. But yet, Lord, in every way, you sought to become like us, to endure the things that we endure, to truly know us, that you might be our perfect Savior. That through your death and your resurrection, through belief in you, we now have access to the throne room of heaven. We have redemption. We have restoration and reconciliation. But we also have a Savior who knows And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. I pray, Lord, for each of us, myself included, Lord, help us to daily walk worthy of that calling on our lives, Lord. To walk in victory, Lord, through our dependence on you. Help us, Lord, to be a people 
who uses the weapons and the tools and the tactics that you've given to us, Lord, to be victorious over the enemy. Do that work in us, Lord, I pray. Father, we love you and praise you. We thank you. We need a move of your spirit now, perhaps more than ever, Lord. As the enemy seems to be waging a considerable battle on this world, help us to go out with confidence, Lord, ready for a fight, Lord, knowing that you go before us. Father, we love you and praise you. We give you thanks, and we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.